This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Passing no aspersions on my partner, who's out at uh, number 38, as the Avalanche gets set to take on the Detroit Red Wings in just a few minutes in Detroit. But, you know, I'm here in the studio by myself, and of course I'm accompanied by uh, one of uh, the greats here, one of the many great uh, producers, uh, board ops here at Mile High Sports, Gordon Bartolik. Uh, the great Danny Bailey, of course, is out with uh, Sean and other fan personnel at the watch party at number 38. But when I'm here, I get to talk to people I really, really like, and I'm not suggesting for a second that Sean doesn't like these people, but I really, really like Tad Boyle and Justin Adams uh, from Channel 4, who joins us now. And uh, Mr. Adams, uh, where do we start? Um <laughs> I, I'm going to go to the Broncos first so we can get that out of the way and get yeah. to more pleasant subjects. But I'm reading all this stuff in various uh, publications and outlets about where the Broncos stand right now, generally and particularly at the quarterback position. And I'm sorry, uh, Jarrett Stidham, Sam Darnold, Jake Browning, Jameis Winston, and others – they don't exactly move the needle for me. How about you? Oh, can I even bring in Trey Lance if you want to get really crazy around here? That's another name you could probably throw into this. I like to call this the uh, circle of nonsense. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> Is that what Sandy, you call it? <laughs> Sandy, let's, call, let's be honest. Two years ago when Russ came in the door, there was at least hope. You at least yeah. said, okay, look, we saw this guy win a championship. He's not um, – he's a lot better, right? At least we thought so. And at least on the outside looking at we felt that – we knew that he wouldn't have the same impact that Peyton had when he came here to the Broncos, but we thought that it could be something light, right, where the Broncos would be in the playoffs. And we always said that, hey, only thing that they needed was a quarterback. They have everything else they need. If they just get a quarterback, they'll be fine. After two seasons, we saw 11-19 and 19 with Russell Wilson. And so now you're really in this purgatory place where you just you don't really have any solid options to go, especially at the quarterback position. Do you go and move up and give up a lot of draft capital for years to come, hoping that you draft somebody that's going to pan out? Or do you stay put at 12 and maybe you get a J.J. McCarthy? Um, you know, people are saying Michael Penix can go in the second round. Do you wait then to go and pick up a quarterback? The reality is, is that, you don't have a guy right now. And when you have somebody like Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert with a really good head coach now, and even the Raiders, if they get a quarterback, I have a feeling they can get their act together. You'll be looking at the bottom of the division for years to come. So something has to be done with this team, especially this offseason, or let's call it what it is. Just wait, lose a whole lot of games, and hopefully Shadur Sanders falls into your lap. Yeah, uh, there's that. Uh possibility certainly uh, if you were to move on from Wilson and I, I'm reminded I guess maybe Sean Payton has a different definition of sooner than I do but when he said at the end of the season sooner or later I guess he said that at the Super Bowl recently and mm-hmm. uh, something to that effect at the uh, post-mortem press conference um, 
maybe he has a different definition of sooner than I do, but the, he said it would happen sooner rather than later. It, it, last time I looked, it was February 22nd. Right. That's not sooner. Right. Uh, as, as anything, do, do you suspect that anything has really changed with the Broncos vis-a-vis Russell Wilson? Uh, their public comments, notwithstanding that they certainly would be amenable to uh, joining forces again for a third year. Uh, I think we all believe that's preposterous, but uh, it is February 22nd and mm-hmm. nothing's been done yet. No, and I believe this, is that when you look back at the rest of the end of the regular season, it should have been handled a lot better so that you could have had that option on the table. Um, where if nothing else was working out, yeah. and you had no other options, then at least you could say, okay, this is not the contract we want, and to be honest, it's not the quarterback we want, especially at this point of his career, but it's better than everything else that's out there. And you know what? Sometimes you have to pay more for something that is <laughs> that is not of the same value, a.k.a. look at the housing prices right now in Colorado, right? Like sure. you got to pay more for houses than they were a decade ago. Reality is you may have to pay a little bit more for a quarterback, even though he's not going to bring you the same value that you had before. So that would have been the option that the Broncos could have had on the table if they would have handled everything differently at the end of the regular season. But now you're pretty much at a point where you have to go and give up Russ. You have to go and let him go. And then now you're looking at, the Stidhams of the world, the Jameis Winstons of the world, and you're looking around and saying, hey, who's going to be your quarterback? And the reality is you really don't have a good option, and your best option is to give up some draft capital, figure out a way how to go and move up in the draft, and get you a quarterback. Let's look at the wide receiver spot for a second. Uh, don't you have to trade Jerry Judy for whatever you can get for him? I understand that uh, trading him maybe last off season would have brought more because people were impressed by the way he finished the 22 season, the last six weeks mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, last year with just 54 receptions for 758 yards, I believe that was his least productive season in a Bronco uniform. His value is not exactly uh, at its zenith at the moment, but d- don't you have to trade him? And then we'll get to Sutton and maybe Bowles in, in a second, but what, how would you deal with Jerry Judy right now? Uh, I would have already had him with a plane ticket. I would have yeah. already had him ready to be traded. Um, I would have said, hey, man, while you're out in the Bahamas, here you go. Uh, we're going to take you somewhere. <laughs> we already cleaned out your locker. So yeah. we'll, we'll FedEx all that to you. Um, because the reality is, is that you have all this money that is now sewn up at the wide receiver position without a quarterback to get the ball there. So why do you have all this money tied up in that? There's no reason to have all that money tied in. And the reality is, is that are you going to sign Jerry Judy for the future with the franchise? Is that a yeah. guy that you're going to say will be our number one? <laughs> um, if the answer is no. He was supposed no, to be that two years ago. Bingo. And so if the answer is no, like like at some point you have to stop saying, well, maybe this is the year he turns it around. Right. Right? Like you either are or you aren't, at least in this uniform. So if you're not that guy in this uniform, and you can have so many different reasons why, right? Instability at quarterback. There were several times we all saw that he was wide open with a lot of green grass ahead of them, and Russ didn't get on the ball. And then there's games where Russ tried to get him the ball, and he couldn't catch the football. So right. it's, just like, it's right. one of those two. I think it's better for him to be at a total different place 
get whatever value that you can because you need that draft capital to really start over, especially with the salary cap issues you have. With Sutton and Bowles, um, you know, Sutton has a little more wiggle room of freedom to sort of do what uh, he prefers to do. Uh, Bowles counts $20 million, I believe, against the cap uh, in the final year of his deal. Uh, do you try to get at least a year more out of both? Uh, how? I mean, with Bowles, I, I don't think he was particularly good this year, but mm-hmm. what? who else are you going to play at left tackle? And that's that's the answer right there, especially when you sewed up all your money on the offensive line. All right. Time, especially with McGlinchey on the right side. And, you know, the reality is I think what I would do is are you going to draft a tackle? Is that something that you're going to do? And if you're not going to get an elite tackle in the draft or if there's not anybody in free agency that you could pick up because, hey, the reality is you spend all your money there, the best option, honestly, would say, hey, let's go and extend bowls. Let's figure out yeah. a way how to extend him. Let's go and figure out a way how he doesn't hurt your cap a lot. Maybe right. you, look, the Panthers are, are, are what we would call rich, okay? No, no, we'll call them wealthy, okay? They got money, money, money. So go and figure out a way how to go and make this a cash-happy deal where you get a lot of money up front, it doesn't hurt your cap, and you can continue to build your team from there. Right. But eventually, you do have to make a decision on that offensive line. Would you extend um, – well, let me ask you this question first. I was reading a piece this week. Uh, Randy Mueller, I have great respect for, longtime NFL executive, writing now for The Athletic. And he put together a list of his top 150 free agents. And I, I, I basically agreed with most of his ratings. But he had Lloyd Cushenberry at number 15, and that puzzled me. At the same time, Considering the age of Bowles and the age of Cushenberry, why does it seem such a given that Cushenberry is gone and that Bowles has to be a part of your future, at least short term? I mean, there's no replacement for Bowles, but there isn't really a replacement for Cushenberry, who's been at least serviceable and even this past year probably had a pretty solid year. Yeah, you know, and that's the interesting thing because the Broncos last year went into the draft and picked up a center in the seventh round. So right, whenever well, and that's center, that's my other question: are, right. are we to believe that Alex Forsythe, a seventh round pick last year, who right. didn't even dress out for most of the games this year, that he's going to step right in and replace Lloyd Cushenberry, and you don't lose anything? No, I, I think you will lose something. Um, first of all, there's a reason why you're a seventh rounder. Secondly, this is not Matt Paradis, right? This is not a guy who was undrafted, no. had a year to be able to go in, right. you know, build up his, his, get the reps and everything, being an undrafted guy on a practice squad, and then came out and became one of the best centers in the league. Um, Forsythe is not that. I hope he becomes that, right? Yeah, but well, at this nice. moment, he is not that guy. But the reality is, is because of the salary cap, and because of all the different decisions you have to make with the guys you already paid, somebody has to be that weak link. You can't go and have all the guys up front to all these second year, to all these second contracts, third contracts, because now you have so much money that's sewn up in one grouping that now you're going to hurt on different areas on your team too. And oh, by the way, you already have to deal with this dead cap situation because of the Russell Wilson contract. So. Cushenberry may be one guy that will go, and 
You just have to hope that foresight or somebody that you draft yeah. this year right. or even that undrafted free agent is able to go and make things happen for your team next season. Have to be a bargain basement deal, though, Got to. if it's Got free to. agency, right? Well, well, Sandy, remember, a lot of people don't, don't remember this, but when you look at that 2015 team and you look at that defense, what made that defense special? Of course, they had stars all over the place, but you had guys like Malik Jackson that was on the last year of their deal. Absolutely. Right? And so yeah. you were able to go and put all this talent on the field, and they were cheap. But yep. you don't have the same thing you can say no. about this team right now. No. They're not performing at a high level, and they're not uh, cheap at all. No, no. <laughs> it's the, it's uh, the polar opposite of uh, where they were in 2015. Mm-hmm. Hey, I want to get to see you. Uh, yeah. We had Tad Boyle on about uh, 35, 40 minutes ago. And uh, he was, I thought, quite restrained uh, in describing where his team is at Mm. this point. I asked him whether the win at USC was a reprieve or uh, possibly a springboard. And uh, uh, he more or less uh, uh, came out with the old Gary Kubiak line, uh, we're fixing to find out uh, (laughs) (laughs) here over the next three games at home. But uh, I, I think... He he talked about his team right now, and I I could sense that there's still a little bit of exasperation. He was talking about practice today, and he said we we were turning the ball over way too much in a practice floor. <laughs> uh, and he's talking about today's practice, uh, for example. And right. it, it it just I, I I'm watching CU. I like their team, but unlike CSU, which seems to play to its potential. Just about every time out, uh, CU just leaves you tearing your hair out sometimes. Well, I, I thought a lot was said when they lost to Arizona at home. And when he pretty much was like, well, guys, look, that's <laughs> I mean, Arizona's really good. They're just you better. Lost yeah. yeah, well, we know that they're just better. But in the college game, teams that are just better also lose, right? Like we saw what happened when Creighton was able to defeat UConn at home, right? And so – there are times where that happens, but to get beat by 20 against a team like After Arizona, losing by 47 to them when you didn't have a, a couple of your stars, admittedly, bingo. when you lost by 47, but you're totally healthy, and they beat you by 20. And, bingo. that you know, I am reluctant still. I know that uh, they're in a different uh, um, financial position now than they used to be, but I'm still reluctant to get on college guys, especially right. freshmen. But uh, I thought in that game, Cody Williams getting pushed around by people like Caleb Love, who are four inches shorter, but much, much, much stronger than Cody Williams is. And I know Cody Williams is going to come out in the draft. But I'm just thinking, if if he is such a non-factor against Arizona, he's not ready for the NBA. He, he no. needs to get stronger. He needs to broaden his game. And he certainly needs to cut down on the turnover. Well, Sandy, that's the number one thing when you talk about this team. Talent is not an issue. Like Everybody will look at the roster and say, wait a minute, talent is not an issue at all with this team. But what they will say is, does this team want it? Is the want to there? I saw it Saturday night, but I hadn't seen it before the last nine minutes of the game on Saturday in the two overtimes. And that's my point exactly, because we were looking at the second half against USC, and they were down by 16, and we were like, hey, this game's over. And essentially... Well, I told Tad I almost turned it off, and he said, well, at least you stayed with it. I've had many friends tell me they did turn it off. Mm -hmm. Well, 
I was surprised. <laughs> I turned it off, <laughs> right? I turned off the game because I was like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And I come back and I'm like, wait, they won the game in overtime? Double overtime? How, right? If they could have that same vigor that they had in a yes, second half. Yes, that's the word. Especially that's when they the take on Utah, right? You have oh, three yeah. winnable games at home. Oh, at right? home, absolutely. Utah, <laughs> Cal, Stanford, they're not tournament teams. If you don't beat Cal by a million, there's a problem, right? So you should be able to take care of business at home. That's three wins right there. And then you could split one of the last two. Yeah. You look up and you most likely would be one of the top four seeds in a Pac-12 I tournament. think so. Yeah, that's and fair. you win a game there. It will give you enough wins to be in the NCAA yeah. tournament. Yeah, I, the the day, after what happened two years ago, maybe they need two wins <laughs> in the Pac-12 tournament. <laughs> even if they win four of their final five, but I, I'm I'm with you. I think they need at least five, and maybe even as many as six wins to get the 23 wins. And I think that's a line of demarcation. I think if you win 23 games, I know the Pac-12 is down a little bit, but you win 23 games overall, and 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 you go. What twelve and eight in conference play you should be in the tournament? Yeah, you know, and just give yourself a shot. I mean, you you never know what will happen. I mean, if Arizona loses and you're on a neutral site, right, and you, you could beat the rest of the teams, Arizona, I don't think you have a chance. But no, on the other team, no. a- any other the team they site? should be. Honestly, yeah. any other team they should be. Agreed, 100%. including Washington 100%. State. Right, agreed. Right, one hundred percent agree. Right. It's always a pleasure, Justin. Thank you, Sandy. I really appreciate you, brother. Have a wonderful day. You too. Enjoy the weekend, and uh, we will, of course, have a program here uh, tomorrow. Sean will be back with us. Uh, we'll come back in just a few months. We'll take a look at where uh, the Nuggets stand, and it's kind of interesting because in the Western Conference this year, you have four teams that are very close at the top, and then you have, depending on your perspective, among the next half dozen teams, including the Lakers and the Warriors, a log jam, train wreck, uh, maybe more of a log jam, because all of these teams at the moment have winning records. Yes, even the Lakers and the Warriors. We'll talk about that next. Turn all of the lights on over every boy and every girl. Closing time. One last call for alcohol, so finish your whiskey or beer. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Sandy Clef, Sean Rotar on this Thursday afternoon in the Mile High City. Sean joined us earlier in the program. He's out at number 38 as the Avalanche are taking on the Detroit Red Wings. And uh, we anticipate uh, that it will be a uh, festive occasion out at uh, number 38 uh, tonight. Uh, the great Danny Bailey is there. Uh, many members of the fan staff, Ryan Blackburn and uh, 
company, uh, which leaves us uh, a little bit lonely. Gordon Bartoluk and I are here, and uh, we welcome your texts, your phone calls at 303-831-1340. Same number if you wish to call or text 303-831-1340. Uh, this is Mile High Sports Radio, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3, milehighsports.com slash watch. If you wish to view the program, you can do that, milehighsports.com slash listen. If that is your preference, uh, we are available via the Mile High Sports app as well. And we have spoken today with two of our favorite people, head coach Tad Boyle at the University of Colorado, as the Buffs uh, hope to be in the midst of a charge late in the season toward the NCAA tournament. Uh, we were just talking with uh, our friend Justin Adams from Channel 4 about that, and uh, we, I think, agree that the Buffs need to win with three of their remaining five at home, two on the road at Oregon and at Oregon State, respectively, that uh, the Buffs need to win the home games and split on the road. Uh It'd be nice to get the game at Oregon, but uh, Oregon State uh, here or on the road would be a must-win type of game and then go into the conference tournament, win at least one game. Uh, You'd be a top-four seed uh, if you finish at 12-8, and which the Buffs would manage to do if they were to win four of their final five games. That would leave them at 12-8, and uh, 13-7. and If they can win all five, that would certainly... Uh, almost guarantee them a top four seed, which would uh, reduce the number of games they have to play and maybe even the number of games they have to win in order to qualify for the NCAA basketball tournament in the uh, racketology uh, projections that came out uh, earlier this week, at least from ESPN and uh, Joe Lenardi. The Buffs had improved their position slightly from where it was prior to Saturday night's win at USC at the Galen Center. The Buffs were among the next four teams out. Uh, The first four out included Providence, Utah, Cincinnati, Wake Forest. Now, that was Tuesday morning, remember, and quite a bit has changed since then. But uh, among those first four out, you had those four schools. They also project the next four out being CU, Villanova, St. John's, and Pitt. CU had been third among the next four out. Now they're at the top of next four out, or if you want to look at it this way, among the first five out. And if you're in that territory, you've got to finish with, maybe only a blip or two, a loss or two along the way. In order to qualify for the tournament, that has to be your reality. That has to be what you're focused on doing right now. Tad Boy was on with us about an hour ago, and he's not looking, I know it. Ken Palm, he's not looking at net rankings and Actually, some of those numbers do make CU look better than its current position suggests it should be. But being among the first four out, first five out, first four out, next four out, 
you still have a shot. And uh, right now, uh, and again, this was as of Tuesday morning. They'll update again tomorrow morning. Uh, We'll present it to you tomorrow afternoon on the program. Earlier this week, the last four in included Butler from the Big East, Gonzaga uh, from the West Coast Conference, Seton Hall, Big East, Ole Miss, SEC. The last four buys, the teams that made it and don't have to play in one of those preliminary games, uh, the first four, as they're called, I believe still, New Mexico, and (laughs) New Mexico strengthened its position last night by beating CSU in a terrific game. Uh, Tad Boyle was talking about that game. He watched that game. New Mexico had four turnovers in that game, and they play at a fast pace. They were great, and CSU in the last Minute of regulation, had the lead twice, made their free throws, had the lead, and and couldn't quite hold off New Mexico to get the win. But it was not a bad loss for CSU, and it was a great win, I think, for New Mexico, which may have moved them up in the uh, bracketology projections. And we know Nevada, also out of the Mountain West, is a very strong team, and uh, uh, one of the schools that CSU will probably have to beat here down the stretch to solidify its position. I think CSU's in the tournament. Now, it sounds funny, again, to look at the standings right now and see CSU in seventh place in an 11-team league. But uh, let's uh, review the bidding here a little bit and uh, take a look at the standings as, as they are right now and how close it really is. Utah State ten and four, top of the Mountain West. Boise State at nine and four. New Mexico nine and five. San Diego State nine and five. Nevada eight and five. UNLV eight and five. CSU eight and six. Okay, so between seventh place and first place, you have two games in a loss column, and there are four games left. Uh, I believe for most of the teams. In the league, uh, CSU has four left. Uh, Air Force has five. Fresno State has five. Wyoming has five left. UNLV has five left. Nevada has five left. So yeah, you, you get the idea. Boise State has five left. Uh, so there are a number of teams that, that have that additional game. But CSU plays at UNLV, and I'm watching these Mountain West telecasts, and every telecast I watch of a Mountain West game, doesn't have to be CSU, they're saying the teams around the league think the team in a tie for fifth place right now, UNLV, half game ahead of CSU, is possibly the best team in the league at least on paper. And I watched UNLV blow a game to Nevada at home the other night that UNLV never should have lost. But if you're talking about talent alone, UNLV is at least as talented as any team in the Mountain West. I think six teams will make it out of the Mountain West. I think CSU will be one of those six. The thing you have to consider, yes, Boise State is in second place, in the Mountain West at nine and four, but overall Boise State is eighteen and eight. CSU, for example, twenty and seven. So CSU is viewed as a better team with better quality wins than Boise State 
for example, now New Mexico is 21 and 6. Good team. San Diego State 20 and 7. Nevada 21 and 6. But UNLV is only 15 and 10 overall. Yeah, you have to remember that. UNLV lost five games out of conference. Uh, most, if not all, of those games, games that their talent indicates they should not have lost. So that's where we are. Uh, to get back to uh, the Nuggets here for a moment and uh, what we might make of uh, their position, uh, the Nuggets have been about as steady as any team this year in the NBA. They've had a couple of 10-win months, but I'll give you the month-by-month Nugget records. 4-0 in October, 9-6 and in November, 10-5 and in December, 10-5 and in January. In February, though, particularly leading into the All-Star break, unlike the Avalanche, who were hot, the Nuggets had cooled off, and they had lost three games in a row, and they lost to Sacramento at home right before the break. So the Nuggets in the month of February are only 3-3. Three and three. They played three games at home and three on the road. They're 3-3. Three and three. All of the other top five teams in the NBA, Minnesota, Boston, Oklahoma City, Clippers, Cleveland, well, let's go down the list. Minnesota's five and two in February. Boston six and one in February. Oklahoma City's four and two. Clippers five and two. Cleveland seven and one in February. Nuggets are three and three. So uh, the Nuggets do have to pick it up a little bit, but their positioning is actually not much different than. Oklahoma City in second place, Clippers in third place in the West. The Nuggets are currently fourth. Now, if you're looking at scheduling advantages down the stretch, Minnesota's played a ton of road games and probably will be able to hold on to first place. There's not much any of the other three contending teams in the West can do about Minnesota unless Minnesota starts losing games at home. And they've only lost 16 games all year. Uh, They're a terrific road team. Uh, They've blown a few home games that they probably shouldn't have lost, but Minnesota is very good. Um, The reason we mentioned before the break a few minutes ago that we ought to pay attention to teams 5 through 10 is because one of those teams is going to be confronting the Nuggets in the first round of the playoffs. And it isn't like last year when the Nuggets played Minnesota and routinely dispatched the Timberwolves in that series, although that series came very close to going back to Minnesota for a game six. Minnesota's a much better team, needless to say in 23-24 than it was in 22-23. But look at these teams 5 through 10. you got Phoenix and New Orleans with 22 losses. Dallas and Sacramento with 23. Lakers and Golden State with 26. So you got six teams separated by four games in the loss column. They could finish in any order. Now, Phoenix has been playing the weakest schedule in the league. 
up until the All-Star break. But now, coming down through the last third of the season, Phoenix is in, Phoenix in fifth place right now, but they've got to play Boston twice, Cleveland, Denver, Oklahoma City, Minnesota, the Clippers, all two times. All these teams, they're the best teams in the league, Boston, Cleveland, Denver, Oklahoma City, Minnesota, the Clippers. Phoenix got to play all those teams twice. I don't think Phoenix is going to stay in fifth place. And the final 10 opponents have winning records as of right now for the Phoenix Suns on their schedule. So they go from having the weakest schedule to one of the toughest schedules post-All-Star break. New Orleans is, I think, a little bit better than its record looks and better than Phoenix right now, and they've got 15 home games left. And their starting lineup is not great, but they have a good bench. Actually, the starting lineup has been outscored this year, which is kind of hard to believe, but their bench is good. They have a deep bench, and they got a lot of home games left. Sacramento is only got a point differential of .5 on average. Not very good. But they've got De'Aaron Fox, and they've got Sabonis, and the Nuggets will be the first to tell you Sacramento's a handful. Sacramento and the Nuggets have played three times this year, and the Nuggets have lost three times to the Sacramento Kings, including once at home. Now, they play them again uh, here in actually just a few days. On the 28th, before the month is out, they play Sacramento again here. But Sacramento's already won the season series. Now, I, tiebreakers aren't going to come into effect between Sacramento and Denver, I wouldn't think. But Sacramento is 3-for-3 three three against the Nuggets, and in the road win home loss differential, the Nuggets plus 10, Sacramento plus 7, New Orleans plus 7. They're not completely out of reach. Now, the Nuggets are in good shape with New Orleans because they don't think they play New Orleans again, and the Nuggets took 2-3 of three earlier this year from the Pelicans. So they're in good shape with tiebreakers there. Uh, they're in good shape with Phoenix. And n- none of these teams are going to catch the Nuggets, even Sacramento and New Orleans. But, uh, again, for positioning and possible first-round matchups, right now it would be in the West, Sacramento, Minnesota, Dallas, Oklahoma City, New Orleans, Clippers, and Phoenix, Denver, which would be a rematch of last year's second-round playoff series between the Nuggets and the Suns. But the Suns are one of those top-heavy teams, and they've tried to make some moves to improve the strength of the bench, but they're spending tons of money on the three superstars who don't play together all that much because of injury. Uh, Durant and Beal and Booker have not really been on the court at the same time all that much. But if you got to a playoff series, and all three were healthy, and you're not playing back-to-backs in the playoffs, as you all know. Uh, uh, Phoenix in the first round, that's different than getting Phoenix in the second round last year. I think Phoenix is a pretty easy mark, although Phoenix is the only team to to beat the Nuggets two straight games in the playoffs. The Nuggets only lost four games. The only two they lost back-to-back were to Phoenix in Phoenix in the second round. 
and that was actually a 2-2 series coming back to Denver. The Nuggets were never in any danger, any danger at all of losing that series. And, of course, as you know, they swept the Lakers, and they beat the Heat in five, and they beat Minnesota in five. So Phoenix, in in theory, was their toughest series. But um, I I think you get the Suns in the second round, that's that's good. You get them in the first round, uh, you, you might have to work a little harder to get that first-round series win than certainly the Nuggets did last year in dispatching the Minnesota Timberwolves. When we come back, uh, we'll go back and uh, take a look at what's going on, and the answer is seemingly at this point not much with the Denver Broncos. That's next. Sandy Clough with you. Wow, high sports. After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members of FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from Bayer. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. is not only one of the classic moments in sports, it is an iconic moment in sports broadcasting 44 years ago today. The miracle on ice. The U.S. over the then Soviets in Lake Placid, New York in what was in effect, a semifinal game, but when you hear of the miracle on ice, that was the miracle. The U.S. beating Finland for the gold medal two days later was not a miracle. The U.S. had a better team. The miracle was beating the Soviets, and the miracle would have applied to anybody who at that point had beaten the Soviets, uh, probably the U.S. had about as good a chance of working a miracle as anybody else did. But they had played before the Olympics in an exhibition at Madison Square Garden about two weeks before the Olympics. And the Soviets had just run wild over Team USA. But that was the great Al Michaels call. And it was a great call because it was spur of the moment. And Al Michaels has many times told the story that he was trying to conjure up a word. 
and all he could think of was miraculous as the clock was ticking down those final seconds. Because remember, uh, Team USA had scored the, the, the goals in the third period to put them ahead and it, it kind of bang-bang fashion. Ruzioni is the famous goal scorer whose goal won the game 4-3. to three. But you, you had to get through the last 10 minutes of the game, and you're watching it, and you're just agonizing because the clock doesn't seem to be moving fast enough. And what I remember about that game, most specifically, and good for Gordon in uh, putting that out there, uh, he, he came in during the break, Gordon uh, Bartolak, our producer today, uh, uh, sitting in for Danny Bailey. And he said, I, I've got a history-making moment for you. And honestly, it didn't occur to me that today was February 22nd, even though I said it was February 22nd, the start of this program. And every, just about every year, because I've been working in this market for 45 years, parts of 45 years. And one of the first major events uh, that the late, great Larry Zimmer uh, was a part of covering was that 1980 Olympic win. And Larry used to tell the story a lot. How he's covering the game. He's in a press box. And remember, the game was on tape delay here. It was not aired live in the United States. It never happened today. Never happened today, but it was on, on tape delay. And back then, you know, ESPN was in its infancy, and, and, and you could shield yourself from getting the result if you wanted to. And a lot of people did that. But I was working at KOA Radio at the time, and, and Larry was covering the Olympics, as he always did for CBS Sports. And Larry's at the game, and he was sitting next to a Soviet journalist. And Larry told the story a lot. At the end of the game, there are no words. Larry gets up. The journalist from the Soviet Union gets up, turns to him, and extends his hand to Larry. And they shake hands. And there are no words spoken. Not a word was spoken between the two, but just that that gesture, and remember, this is, the, this is the high point of the Cold War, probably at that point, right? That was the year, Summer Olympics, the U.S. didn't send a team over because the Summer Olympics were staged in the Soviet Union. This is Lake Placid, New York, and there had been some talk because Carter had announced, President Carter uh, had announced that because of the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviets, that the U.S. team would not be going to the Soviet Union. There's some talk that mm, maybe a little tit for tat that the Soviets wouldn't send a team to Lake Placid. But they really, with their hockey team, they couldn't make that sort of move. I mean, they had the dominant hockey team in the world. Uh, they had gone against NHL all-star teams and beaten the tar out of them. In, in not, I'm not talking about the 72 Summit Series. I'm not talking about that one. But I'm talking about between 72 and 80, how dominant the Soviets were. And if you're familiar with that period, you know what I'm talking about. 
And so they, they win that game. But Michaels thinks of the word miraculous and uses it to form a question, do you believe in miracles? And, it, I mean, on the spot, not re- who, who would have rehearsed that first going into the game? Who, who would have rehearsed something like that? You couldn't possibly anticipate the USA would win the game and certainly not win it as they did. And it, it was still spine tingling. I still get shivers up my spine just thinking about that game. And as it happened, in college, I covered Division I hockey because St. Lawrence had a Division I hockey program. Not a very good one, but they were a Division I hockey program. I saw and knew a little bit about, and I even knew some of the players on that team a little bit. There was no player from St. Lawrence that I knew well, obviously, on the USA Olympic hockey team at that point. I did not know Herb Brooks, at least not at that time. Got to know him a little bit in in later years, uh, which is probably kind of a story in itself. Uh, Ups and downs. Uh, Brooks is a uh, Brooks could be a tough guy, as his players knew. But it, 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 Herb Brooks will always be known as the hockey Lombardi for what he did with that USA Olympic hockey team, and 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 those kids, and, men, and especially the Boston kids. I I knew some of those guys reasonably well because I'd seen them play and covered them. Uh, you know, and they were beating the tar out of St. Lawrence for the most part. Although St. Lawrence did beat Boston University when Boston University had Micah Ruzzioni and Jim Craig between the pipes. Well, remember that. St. Lawrence did something the Soviets couldn't do. Of course, they only did it once while I was there. But they did do it once. The Soviets couldn't do it. Uh, Ruzzioni scored the winning goal, and Craig was fantastic in that game. Craig was fantastic. And, you know, they, there really wasn't a second act for most of those guys. Someone on, Ken Morrow in particular, went on to become multiple time Stanley Cup champion with the New York Islanders. He was part of the Islanders dynasty uh, in the early uh, to mid-1980s. But, you know, most of the players had decent pro careers, but fairly unremarkable. And Herb Brooks, as a coach, had an unremarkable NHL coaching career. Never got close to winning the Stanley Cup. But for that one period of two weeks, and particularly on that Friday night in Lake Placid, February 22, 1980, Herb Brooks was perhaps the greatest coach who ever lived in any sport for that one game. In beating, you talk about dynasties. I mean, the Soviets, going back to 1960 at the Olympics, had ruled the Olympics in hockey. And Brooks was cut from that 1960 team that won a gold medal. He was the last guy cut. And 20 years later, he was the head coach of the Miracle on Ice. All right, we'll see you tomorrow on February 23rd, 2024. Sean will be back with us here in studio. 22 hours from now, our thanks to uh, Gordon Bartolik. We're sitting in today. Gordon, great job. Thank you. And uh, Danny Bailey will return tomorrow, as will Sean Rotar here in the studio. Our thanks to Tad Boyle and Justin Adams, our guests earlier on in the program. See you tomorrow right back here on Mile High Sports. Stay with us.
changing the game.